Hello and welcome to episode 235 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Terrence M. Stanton. We are recording on Saturday, July the 9th, 2022. Once again, July is the month dedicated to loving, honoring, and cherishing the most precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're continuing to check out the book Devotion to the Precious Blood, which was initially published in 1925. The author is Father M.F. Walls. This installment from part two is Reflections and Meditations on the Precious Blood, Prototypes of the Precious Blood. God accepted Noah's sacrifice after the deluge with complacency, but forbade him the use of blood. Everything that moveth and liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I delivered them all to you, saving that flesh with blood ye shall not eat. Genesis 9, 3 and 4. Through Adam's act of disobedience, man had fallen under the penalty of which God had forewarned him. In the day ye eat thereof, ye shall die the death. After the flood, he was to start a new life. He must not eat the blood, which is the life. And as he poured it out upon the earth, he would be reminded of his sin and punishment. The divine command would create, or at least help to preserve, the impression of a lost life that was to be redeemed and to stimulate their hope of the Messiah who would restore all things. Moses received the same command and God gave him the reason for this prohibition of blood. I have given it to you that you may make atonement with it upon the altar for your souls, and the blood may be for an expiation of the soul. Leviticus 17.11 Why then was blood held so sacred? How could the blood of animals offered upon the altar become so pleasing to God? St. John Chrysostom answers, God caused it to be held sacred and considered himself honored by it, not simply because it was blood, but because it represented in type the blood of Jesus Christ. As a pledge of his special protection to the Israelites in Egypt, God expressly chose the blood of the Paschal Lamb, the type of the true Lamb of God. And the blood shall be unto you for a sign in the houses where you shall be. And I shall see the blood and shall pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you, Exodus twelve thirteen. Moses sealed the old covenant with sacrificial blood. He took the blood and sprinkled it upon the people, and he said, This is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Exodus 24, 8. The pouring out and sprinkling of the blood of animals as types of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world was one of the chief forms of worship in the old law for thousands of years. Blood enters into the very nature of sacrifice, for the life of all flesh is in the blood. Leviticus 17.14 And again, the blood is for the soul. Deuteronomy 12.23 Hence the reason for saying that devotion to the precious blood is as old as the world. One of the principal rites of the bloody sacrifice of the old law was the laying of hands upon the victim's head and the shedding of its blood. By the former, the transferring of sins from the person offering to the animal offered 
was symbolized so that the victim, instead of the offender, might suffer the penalty of sin, which is death. The blood was offered to signify the life of the sinner forfeited by sin. The typical nature of these rites is sufficiently clear. Our sins were transferred to Christ, as Isaiah says, He hath borne our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our iniquities. He was bruised for our sins. Isaiah 53, 4. In the holy sacrifice of the Mass, our Lord offers himself as a victim for our iniquities and sheds his blood mystically for the remission of sins. One of these sacrifices of expiation is mentioned in the book of Leviticus. It's Leviticus 4, 24 and 25. And he shall put his hand upon the head thereof, and when he hath immolated it in the place where the Holocaust is wont to be slain before the Lord, before it is for sin, excuse me, because it is for sin, the priest shall dip his finger in the blood of the victim for sin, touching therewith the horns of the altar of Holocaust and pouring out the rest at the foot thereof. According to St. Paul, Christ by his own blood entered once forever into the holies, having obtained by his bloody death eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and oxen sanctifies such as are defiled, how much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience? Hebrews nine eleven through 14. Christ as a Holocaust pouring out his blood upon the altar of the cross is a victim infinitely more valuable than all the countless holocausts of Judah. The bloody sacrifices of the old law as prototypes most certainly imply a sacrifice of blood in the new dispensation. Hence, St. Paul says, Neither was the first testament indeed dedicated without blood, and almost all things, according to the law, are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Hebrews 9, 18-22 On the eve of the Passion, as Christ sat with his disciples at the Last Supper, he took bread and broke it and said, This is my body. And he took wine and poured it out, saying, This is my blood of the new covenant, which shall be shed for you and for many under the remission of sins. Drink ye all of it. And his disciples, brought up as they had been under the law, might have looked amazed. Drink the blood. Why the blood? Why? The blood is the life, and the law forbade them to drink it. But the time to renew all things had come. The years of waiting were at an end. The woman's seed was there to give back in all its fullness the life that had been forfeited by disobedience. For this is the testimony that God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. Except therefore ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no life in you. The blood of the second Adam shed and given to him was at once to nourish and remind him of that new life. So ends this passage. I'll repeat these words, the words of our Lord, except therefore ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no life in you. Where do Protestants do that? Protestants believe that their communion service, whether it's in the Anglican communion or Lutheran or whatever, is consubstantiation as opposed to transubstantiation. And I'm sure there are many different Protestant denominations that believe slightly different things. In other words, that 
their bread and wine that they serve or bread and grape juice, whatever it might be, symbolizes, is like the body and blood of our Lord. But we as Catholics take our Lord at his word, take sacred scripture literally. And once again, in the sixth chapter, in the gospel according to St. John, Jesus says repeatedly that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's speaking literally. Again, that Greek word is trogon, which means to gnaw on the flesh. Where do Protestants do that? They don't. Catholicism is the one true faith. Always remember that, my friends, when you're engaging in apologetics, obviously do so charitably. But know that the Catholic Church can answer any objection to it because the Catholic Church is true. She is the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. She's the church of history. She's the church that collected, protected, and promulgated divine scripture. She's the church of logic. She's the church that has the perfect complementarity between faith and reason. Faith is greater than reason, but they're not opposed to each other. Reason is grounded in faith. So when you're defending the faith, and by virtue of our baptism and confirmation, we're called to defend the faith, know that the church can answer any objection to it. I recommend a book entitled Blue Collar Apologetics by a gentleman named John Martinoni. You've probably heard him on EWTN or seen him on uh, the EWTN station. He does magnificent work in what is known as the heart of the Protestant Bible Belt, the Southern Baptist Bible Belt in Alabama, defending the faith. God bless Mr. Martinoni. I recommend picking up that book, Blue Collar Apologetics. Defend the faith. Do so charitably. Do so with love for souls. Know that we cannot do anything of our own volition to convert others. It's the work of the Holy Ghost. We are broken instruments whom God will use as he pleases, as he sees fit. If you love people, you have to tell them the truth. You have to tell them that they need to repent and believe in the gospel and that Catholicism is the one true faith. She's the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on now with the book, Plinio Correa de Oliveira, Prophet of the Reign of Mary. I also remember getting a copy of this book. So many great books out there that I want to read. So many books, so little time. Written by Professor Roberto Di Mattei. This is the section of the text entitled Plinio Correa de Oliveira and the Social Kingship of Jesus Christ. While liberal Catholicism denied the social kingship of Christ, all counter-revolutionary authors faithful to papal teachings see it as an indispensable ideal and principal remedy to the crisis of our time. Jean Osset dedicated to it a programmatic work, that he may reign, while Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre summed it up with the formula, They Have Uncrowned Him, the title of one of his last books, subtitled From Liberalism to Apostasy, The Conciliar Tragedy. Monsignor de Lassus, to whom Plinio Correa de Oliveira refers, wrote that he was convinced that the defeat of the revolution 
will inaugurate the social reign of our Lord Jesus Christ upon mankind, forming a single fold under a single shepherd. Plinio embraced this ideal from his youth, capturing its close connection with devotion to the Sacred Heart. In October 1939, when the Second World War had already started, he wrote in Legionario, the doctrine on the kingship of Jesus Christ is closely linked to the most beautiful and gracious practice of enthroning the Sacred Heart of Jesus in homes. If we enthrone an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the richest and most noble place in our home, it is precisely because we recognize that he is king. However, in how many homes out there, the image of Christ has been enthroned in the room, but Christ is not enthroned in people's hearts. In order to make us understand his absolute authority upon us as God, Jesus Christ deigned to compare himself to a king. However, since it is through him that kings reign, and since the authority of kings is authentic only because it comes from him, he is in fact the only king, the king par excellence. And kings or heads of state are nothing but humble acolytes of his, whom he deigns to employ in the work of governing the world. Christ is king because he is God. By calling him king, we merely affirm his divine omnipotence and our obligation to obey him. Obedience. Behold, one of the concepts essentially contained in the concept of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is king, and to a king, obedience is due. To celebrate the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ is to celebrate his power over us, and by implication, our obedience to him. How do you obey a king? The answer is simple, by knowing his will and fulfilling it with loving detail and accuracy. Thus, the only way for us to obey Christ the king is to know his will and follow it. From this very clear, simple, and luminous notion, there also follows a program of life, which is likewise clear, simple, and luminous. In other words, let us be good Catholics. Being good Catholics, we will necessarily be apostles. And being apostles, we will necessarily be soldiers of Christ the King. In a programmatic article, which appeared in the first issue of Catalismo in January 1951, Plinio emphasized not only the individual, but also the social character of the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God will attain its fulfillment in the next world. For all of us, however, it already begins to exist in a germinative state in this world. And the Holy Catholic Church in this world is not only an image of heaven, but a real anticipation of heaven. Everything, therefore, that the Holy Gospels tell us about the kingdom of heaven applies most properly and exactly to the Catholic Church, to the faith she teaches, and to each of the virtues she inculcates. This is the meaning of the feast of Christ the King. He is above all the heavenly king, but nevertheless a king whose rule is already exercised in this world, and a king who by right possesses full and supreme authority. A king legislates, rules, and judges. His royalty becomes effective when his subjects recognize his rights and obey his laws. Now Jesus Christ has all rights over us. He promulgates laws, rules the world, and will judge mankind. Thus, it is our obligation to make his reign effective by obeying his laws. This reign exists on an individual level insofar as every faithful soul obeys our Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Christ's reign is exerted on our souls, and therefore each soul is under Christ's jurisdiction. The reign of Christ will become a social fact if human societies obey him. Thus, it can be said that the reign of Christ becomes effective on earth in its individual and social meaning 
when men in the depths of both their souls and actions and societies and their institutions, laws, customs, cultural and artistic manifestations comply with Christ's law. Quoting Cardinal Pie, Plinio wrote in 1952 in Catholicismo, I'm butchering that word, it's Catholicism in Portuguese, and I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation, forgive me. The general point of convergence of the whole revolutionary work is the radical negation of the social kingdom of the divine savior. We do not want him to reign over us. We have no king but Caesar. Therefore, in order not to desert from his faith as a member of the church militant, a Catholic must fight for the restoration of the reign of Christ as the only way to restore true civilization, which is Christian civilization, the Catholic city. I'm struck by the fact there, that ends the reading for today. I'm struck by the fact there that both Dr. Plinio and Father Walls in the work Devotion to the Precious Blood talked about the importance of obedience. When we are obedient to the Lord, blessings will come for ourselves, for our families, and if enough people are doing that, for the society at large. But when we are disobedient to the Lord's will, when we say no to the most holy trinity and yes to the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, then problems arise in society. And that's what we have right now. We need to acknowledge Christ as king, not only of the society that we're living in, but also of our families and of ourselves. It starts with number one. It starts with personal holiness. And then we build out from there to build up a truly Catholic civilization. Oremos. Prayer for the hastening of the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary by Bishop Schneider. O Immaculate Heart of Mary, Holy Mother of God and our tender mother, look upon the distress in which the whole of mankind is living due to the spread of materialism, godlessness, and the persecution of the Catholic faith. In our own day, the mystical body of Christ is bleeding from so many wounds caused within the church by the unpunished spread of heresies, the justification of sins against the sixth commandment, the seeking of the kingdom of earth rather than that of heaven, the horrendous sacrileges against the most holy Eucharist, especially through the practice of communion in the hand and the Protestant shaping of the celebration of the Holy Mass. Amidst these trials appeared the light of the consecration of Russia to thine immaculate heart by the Pope in union with the world's bishops. In Fatima, thou didst request the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays of the month. Implore thy divine son to grant a special grace to the Pope that he might approve the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. May Almighty God hasten the time when Russia will convert to Catholic unity, mankind will be given a time of peace, and the Church will be granted an authentic renewal in the purity of the Catholic faith, the sacredness of divine worship, and the holiness of Christian life. O Mediatrix of all graces, O Queen of the Most Holy Rosary and our sweet Mother, turn thine eyes of mercy towards us and graciously hear this, our trusting prayer. Amen. The Prayer to St. Joseph for his Soul in Purgatory by Father Calloway. St. Joseph, reigning in heaven with Jesus and Mary, intercede for the souls in purgatory. Today, in particular, I ask you to turn your gaze to the soul who is most forgotten in purgatory. This soul longs to see the face of God, O good Father. Ask the Holy Trinity to take this soul to the glory of heaven today. Remember me, St. Joseph, when I die. 
I beg you to be prompt in delivering me from purgatory so that I can see you, Jesus, and Mary face to face. Amen. By thy pure and immaculate conception, O Mary, obtain for me the conversion of Russia, Spain, Portugal, Europe, the United States, Canada, and the whole world. Virgo potens, ora pro nobis, Sancti Yosef, Teradimonem, ora pro nobis, in nomine Patris, et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Thank you very kindly, my friends, for listening to episode 235 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. In your charity, please share Our Lady's podcast with everyone you know. Follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Fatima Podcast. And please, please, please pray for the eternal salvation of Pope Francis. Goodbye and God love you.